Hi everyone and welcome to the Tyndall Talks, the Tyndall Center's official podcast. I'm Renee from the Tyndall Center at the University of East Anglia and our episode today is about aviation and shipping emissions. So aviation emissions have become a hot topic recently thanks to the revelation that celebrities like Kylie Jenner and Taylor Swift have been using their private jets even for short trips and apparently even for as short as a three-minute flight. So this has caused some uproar, especially as climate researchers and activists have been pushing for a reduction of emissions in the aviation sector. Over the years, with cheaper tickets available to the public for air travel, aviation emissions have skyrocketed. According to the data from Oxford University, flying accounts for 2.5% of the world's emissions. The UK Research Institute released a study that shows aviation could consume one-sixth of the remaining temperature budget to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. And similarly, the shipping industry is responsible for around 940 million tons of carbon dioxide annually, which is at least 3% of the world's total carbon emissions. So, why is aviation and shipping problematic, and what solutions can we implement to solve this problem? Our guests today are James and Asha. They are postdoc researchers at the University of Manchester, whose research focuses on aviation and shipping. So, originally a physics graduate, James changed career paths to research climate change due to his personal passion for environmental work. He finished his PhD on low-carbon shipping in July last year, and his research looks at how ships can install modern sails to reduce their emissions. Asha is currently working on the UK ERC project on exploring the barriers and opportunities of sustainable fuels in the freight and aviation sector. Prior to joining the Tyndall team, Asha held a senior analyst role at the sustainability consulting firm working in both Asian and North American regions. So welcome to the podcast, James and Asha. Hi. Hi. Thanks for being here today. I think we have no better experts to talk about aviation and shipping than the both of you. So so first, let us go to the problem, the root of the problem. Why are aviation and shipping emissions problematic? And what are the complexities when we talk about aviation and shipping emissions? Um, I think just to start off with um, aviation and shipping emissions, you know, put, just put it simply, contribute to global warming. Um, they take up, as you said, a very big chunk of the global emissions. And so very simply put, these are two sectors that have been neglected um, because of the complexities, um, we are unable to mitigate on the scale that we need to uh, because of a whole host of reasons. Um, I think on the aviation side, I can think of a few reasons as to why. I think the first is we tend to only focus more on the CO2 emissions. Um, it's very important that we also mention that there's non-CO2 emissions um, from both aviation and shipping. And when you combine the CO2 and non-CO2, the impact uh, of aviation on global warming actually increases um, by a large sum. So I think it's important to maybe also mention that. That's one. Um, the other reason is infrastructure, aviation and shipping 
shipping, within aviation and shipping, infrastructures can last for a long time. So just because we decided that they're important to, to mitigate uh, emissions from aviation shipping today doesn't mean that we can implement those changes tomorrow. They take a very long time um, for those to come online and people you know, within academia and to, to do practical research on how to decarbonize those things. Um, so that is a time frame issue that we have, and it's not like we have a luxury of time at this moment. Um, you know, the other thing is the international nature of both shipping and aviation emissions. Who is going to take accountability for what's happening in international waters? And so this accountability question has been around for a long time, and it's very difficult to um, account for emissions. I think it's been easier in aviation compared to shipping, but at the same time, it's a very important aspect, and that's one of the key reasons why it hasn't really been addressed as well as we would hope. Uh, yeah, just to add to that as well, um, in terms, yeah, you, so you mentioned the scale of emissions, so it's about one billion tons of CO2 per year from shipping. Uh, and as you said, that's a, a around 3%. To put it into scale, that's like the emissions of Germany or the whole of South America. Um, and if it was a country, it would be the sixth highest emitter in the world. So it is quite significant. I think aviation at the minute is just a little bit less than that, but it's in, in the same scale. And as Asha mentioned, yeah, you've, you've not just got this carbon dioxide emissions that you're con contributing to contributing to global warming and climate change, but you've got the other emissions as well. So um, ships particularly, um, that's my, my expertise and, and what I know about, but they burn quite dirty fuel. So you also get um, NOx emissions, nitrous oxide emissions and, and sulfur oxide emissions uh, with particulate matter as well. Um, and that's, that's, a, that's quite a serious problem um, because it goes into the atmosphere and, and contributes to, to um, uh, bad human health impacts, particularly around coastal areas. So there's a study that I read maybe about a month ago, um, and it uh, re uh, related around 60,000 premature deaths uh, each year to, to shipping emissions alone, which is quite a, quite a significant amount. So as well as these carbon dioxide emissions that are contributing to climate change, we've also got these other impacts that both shipping and, uh, and aviation are, uh, are having as well. And yet, I completely agree with what Asher says in terms of how long these assets, these ships and these planes are, uh, are around and how difficult that can make it to to decarbonize because you're, you're essentially, uh, particularly ships, you you know, they'll, they'll be around for 25, 30 years. So um, a lot of the work that we do here at Tyndall looks at how we can sort of um, retrofit these these existing ships because they they are a, a significant part of the problem. Uh, and by retrofit, we just mean installing um, or integrating technologies into the to the fleet that exists at the minute to to reduce some of the some of the emissions that they're producing. Thank you. I think these were really good explanations on the many challenges of um, aviation and shipping emissions. You know from different uh, gases, not only carbon, technology challenges, but maybe I wanted to pick up specifically on, on this problem of, I guess, international borders, right? I mean, in the Paris Agreement, aviation and shipping not included because countries couldn't decide, well, who we do we attribute 
aviation and shipping emissions do? It's so difficult, you know. Um, I mean, a lot of goods, for example, come from China via trade, but China will say, well, you know, we are not the consumers, so maybe the consumers of other countries need to be responsible because without demand, you know, there we won't be doing this. So my question is, and maybe there's no one way to answer this, who is responsible for aviation and shipping emissions and how can emissions be reduced to what you consider an acceptable level? I think that's a difficult question to answer, especially the first part, because there is no methodology in shipping sector currently to calculate this international emissions. There's no accepted international methodology that says this is how we divide up the emissions between two countries if there's trade. And the other complexity, the other layer of complexity in shipping is that just because it starts from China doesn't mean and, and goes to England doesn't mean that it only goes to those two countries. It stops in different points during the journey. Um, so that adds another layer of confusion as to how this should be calculated and what is fair. Uh, right. So that's one aspect to that. Um, so the the question kind of remains unanswered. You know, how are we going to be who's going to be responsible for this? Uh, the way that that we currently have sort of like a semi solution, it's not really a solution, is that the International Maritime Organization and the International Civil Aviation Organization are two UN bodies that are responsible for the international emissions. Um, there's a whole host of criticism for those two agencies because targets haven't really been as ambitious as they should be. Uh, the I think the UN Secretary General himself criticized the current policies around international emissions and said that current trajectories are aligned more with a three degree temperature rise rather than a 1.5 limit, which is a very scathing review of what uh, policies kind of reflect, especially in an international level. Um, the other question is a very important one that we haven't really answered in the sector is the question of equity. What is fair? Um, who is responsible uh, for which part of the emissions? And in the Paris Agreement, um, it says that emissions should be uh, developed countries or annex one country should contribute their fair share. Um, and that is, you know, they have to go above and beyond uh, to make sure that um, temperature rise is limited to 1.5. Um, are they doing that? That's a question that we could probably answer. We are, we are within Tyndall, very critical of, of current uh, trajectories that developed countries have um, have carved for themselves, but yeah, it's it's a very complex topic. Yeah, we've been very critical here of the of the IMO targets. Um, yeah, just to just to give a a, a little background. Um, so the we've we've got the Paris Agreement, which is the the, the global agreement to limit the global warming to a specific temperature. So it says one point five degrees and two degrees. That's typically achieved through uh, nationally determined contributions. So countries set targets to try and reach the temperature agreement limits that we have. But as Asha mentioned, due to the complexities in apportioning it for, for shipping and, and for aviation, and because, I mean, for, for, for shipping, for example, you've, I mean, who do you apportion it to? You've got, the, you've got the ship charter, you've got the ship owner, you've got the flag nation that the ship is registered to, you've got where the ship operates. So as Asha said, yes, yeah, it's, it's who becomes responsible for that. Um, and it becomes difficult to apportion it to nations 
which means it becomes hard to set them in nationally determined contributions to to, to link it back to the Paris Agreement. Um, so that's where the IMO and I, ICAO come in. Yeah, um, but yeah, we've been very critical. So we've done some work here at Tyndall that looks at the, the sector's targets and whether they are in line with the 1.5 degree uh, global warming limit that's set by the Paris Agreement. And yeah, we found that they are not compatible, um, not too surprisingly. Um, so the current targets are um, zero carbon, uh, no, sorry, a 50% reduction on 2008 levels by 2050. So that's what the IMO has set. Uh, but what we found is they need to be zero carbon by 2050. And not only that, they need a 34% a, a reduction by 2030. So, you know, there's an intermediate step that they need to, that they need to reach as well. And it can be incredibly slow. I mean, I only know about the IMO, but um, the discussions happen in uh, a meeting that occurs uh, almost once a year, I think it's once every nine months or so. It's called the Marine Environmental Protection Committee meeting, the MEPC. Um, and I was fortunate enough to, to go to one of these. I think it was maybe like three or four years ago now. Um, but yeah, it, I mean, it was an incredible experience and I was just an observer, but it's sort of like a UN meeting. So there's some, there's like the, 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 General, the, the secretary at the, the front who's who's uh, running the, the session and then you've got all the UN countries sat around all mm -hmm. discussing uh, a point at a time where they'll they'll bring up an issue and then the countries will all have their say on it and it can be um it can be slow be jarring um, yeah it can be <laughs> to really look at how policies are made <laughs> you don't yeah. want to look at how the sausage is made <laughs> yeah and then if you look at that in the context of you know some of the quite imminent action we need to tackle climate change and i mean even just the phrase climate emergency that that doesn't agree with some of the processes that are that are going on which can be incredibly slow and um, yeah i think jarring is a good word actually <laughs> yeah thank you both i think you know we we have the every right to criticize um the imo if they don't, if they don't have enough um, targets, they don't do enough actions to reach the Paris Agreement target. And and based on both of your answers, we can see that you know there's a lot that can be done um, in this sector internationally. But I guess I want to tackle you know the issue of what Asha said is equity and fairness and justice and. Recently, you know, in, in, in recent discourse and narratives in the media, or you see it on Twitter all the time as well, when we talk about flying and maybe to a certain extent shipping, you know, there is a tendency to blame regular people who buy cheap flights, or maybe even these days I see really cheap, you know, cruise ships. Um, and people who just want to travel and see the world. And, you know, this is part of, I guess, a human right, right? To, to see it's in the UN Declaration of Human Rights, etc. And most people, you know, only fly once or twice a year or, you know, save up for a cruise ship of their lifetime and then that's it. Compared to the flights of the few people, you know, with private jets or corporations, etc. And so how can we change this narrative that puts fairness and justice and equity 
And Asher even mentioned love because if your family, you know, if you're a migrant, for example, I'm a migrant and my family lives in the U.S. in the Philippines. So, you know, do you recommend that we never visit our families again because that requires flying? Like, I don't think I can travel to the Philippines for a whole month uh, via trains or, you know, slower methods of, of transportation. And as climate researchers, you know, both of you, even I, um, we are always told, you know, you should take the train, right? But does it really matter if one or two climate people are flying, if the plane is going to take off anyway? So what is your take on all of this? I think it's important to also divide the people that travel into segments. I think we have to recognize that affluent nations and people who live in richer countries are more responsible for a higher carbon footprint. And flying is probably one of the highest emitting activities that you can do in your lifetime. The other aspect to that is the rich in richer countries, the real, the top 1%, are responsible for 50% of the aviation emissions. Um, that is a really stark uh, fact. And I think it's also important to make that differentiation. There have been conversations about, you know, implementing frequent flyer levies. And when we talk about frequent flyer levies, we don't mean that people who visit their families once a year. We're really talking about the people who travel frequently um, for business reasons or tourist reasons or whatever it may be, taking five flights a year. So you're right, Renee, I, I'm also an immigrant and I understand this, this moral argument uh, that's present about flying. You know, I cannot ask people not to see their families because um, that seems unfair. But the other thing is that we're we are kind of not accounting for that very small part of the population that are responsible for a very big chunk of the problem. And those are really the population and the segment that we need to focus on. That's the demographic that we need to focus on. You know, there are individual actions, obviously, that that people can undertake. But, you know, that's the that's the sliver of the population that causes a lot of the 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 problems. Um, yeah, there is a huge equity issue. And, you know, you mentioned this private jet taking private jets and you know in in talking about aviation we don't really focus our conversations isn't focus on private jets because obviously we think it's a it's a choice that people have made to to take a private jet and obviously that emits a lot of co2e per person and so um it's very difficult to say something obvious like don't take a private jet <laughs> how do you stop emissions from that one percent don't take a private jet and the other kind of important thing that has happened in the last few years is COVID. I mean, I can't not comment on this. And we've kind of changed our the way that we fly. Our patterns have changed. The way that we see flying has changed, especially for business travel. Um, and so those consumer patterns have been impacted for the long run. And I think this is the right opportunity to talk about something like this and, and sort of implement decarbonization measures from a consumer perspective. Um, you know, so, yeah, I think shipping might be a little bit tougher on, on this, on the demand side. But, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it's super interesting. I mean, I've got I've got a few points to make. Firstly, I just want to ask: Do we know where the the three minute flight was? <laughs> I was super oh, interested. 
I don't know if we know where that was flying to oh, and from. Yeah, yeah. well, well, from what? From the uh, entertainment pages that I've read recently. <laughs> um, it seems that um, Kylie Jenner went, um, I think, shopping because Stop she it. she she couldn't um, doesn't want to sit. Uh, in a car for 40 minutes so it was actually around 40 <laughs> minutes by car but she decided that you know well I have a private jet and can get there in three minutes so why not <laughs> yeah, I can't talk about equity in this context this seems yeah, ridiculous uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sorry um, James go ahead no, no it's okay <laughs> so I think a, a, a couple of points that I would make is um, even though it is frustrating <laughs> <laughs> things like the three-minute flights um i think we all need to play our part in this transformation and even though it's frustrating that some people don't do um our higher emitters essentially and don't play their part i think it's important that when we can we look at our own lives and see where we can contribute um and that might not always be possible but as Asha said flying is probably the most carbon intensive thing we can do so if it is possible I know it's not always if it is possible to look at our own lives and see where we might be able to reduce the number of flights that we take then I think that is a, a good thing for example if you're flying from London to Paris and there's the option for a Eurostar then you know if that's financially possible then then great maybe that's the the better option um the unfortunate thing is in the timeframes that we're talking about, I mean, the next 10 years is critical for climate change. And unfortunately, within those 10 years, especially for aviation, there's not much we can really do to reduce how carbon intensive flying is. I mean, there's fuel efficiency gains. And I know you have looked at route optimization because that's something I look at in shipping, but that's unlikely to make a serious enough dent within the timeframes that we're talking about. So we have to look at reducing demand. Um, and that's that's super important in this context. Um, and in terms of the, the plane taking off anyway, I've, I've given this a, a thought because it's something that my, my friends tell me quite often. I think the 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 thing I relate it to is, is uh, the push for vegetarianism maybe about 10 years or so ago, maybe, maybe more now, 15 years or so. And people are saying, well, you know, that meat is there anyway, you know, you that animals are going to get killed so you might as well you might as well eat it but then vegetarianism really gained a lot of momentum and demand reduced and that has had a subse subsequent impact so i mean i feel like the, the same applies to to aviation yes that flight might take off anyway but if enough people stop flying to reduce the demand then the flight won't fly um yeah i think, individually. I think sorry, yeah go. sorry two points to that i think the first that James mentioned, which is a key point, the second point that he mentioned, sorry, the financial aspect. I think when you live in the UK and Europe, and this is a very regional context specific comment, is that there are train networks uh, across Europe and there is a viable option for people to take. The problem again becomes that the finance, not everybody has the luxury of choosing between taking a flight and taking a train because trains are expensive and they take longer. So when a person at the end of the day is making this logical choice, it is an economic one, right? It's cheaper to fly, it's quicker to fly. Why is anybody gonna take a more expensive and longer route of, of transport, 
right? I'm talking about the common man. We are climate change researchers. So we kind of have this internal assessment that we do where we're like, yeah, we have to take it because that's that's right. Um, yeah, that's the first thing. The second thing is, yeah, James is right about, about demand management. I think it's an important thing. And I think I have to also, when we were talking about IMO and ICAO, it's important to recognize that uh, aviation sector has a lot of lobbyists and they have a lot of influence on how policy is made. And part of that is that they don't want to talk about demand management because it's business, you know, um, and it's going to hamper the profit margins. So it's very important that we don't kind of let that go and see what the true nature of policymaking is rather than, you know, just blame everything on ICAO and IMO. So, yeah. And just to add to that, yeah, I completely agree about the financing issue and the and the time issue. I mean, I went to a conference in Italy a few weeks ago and I got the train there, but it took me three days. And I think the total return journey cost was over a thousand pounds. And, you know, my um, my funding paid for that and it was acceptable because I'm a climate researcher and we're fortunate enough to have that yeah. option. I'm also fortunate enough to have a job where a lot of my job is coding. So I can sit on a train and I can code mm -hmm. and I can count it as my work day. Not a lot of people have, have that luxury. Yeah, that luxury. Exactly. And that makes it more difficult. People can't afford a thousand pound train journeys to, to, to go for a conference for, mm -hmm. for three nights. Um, so it becomes difficult. Um, so, yeah, there are complexities. But again, just looking at what we can do and the individual actions we can take, um, where possible, I think is is important. Yeah, yeah. I think just picking up on some of your points there, um, especially you know when you mentioned the vegetarianism, I guess campaign from years ago, and you know it started to gain momentum, etc. I noticed that you know part of that campaigning and what I see as well online for you know. Uh, aviation campaigning to reduce emissions, right, from the consumer perspective, there's a lot of shaming involved, which I don't think helps the narrative of, you know, hey, you're flying, you're flying today, you know, you should be shamed for it in the same way as, oh, you're eating meat, uh, you should be shamed for it. I don't think that works. But what do you think can be an alternative narrative or a, an alternative way to to maybe um you know instead of shaming someone make someone feel better about themselves instead of guilting them into something because i don't think negative feelings or negative emotions really work most of the time so you know what what are your thoughts about this i, I think I, I i would agree with you i think yeah the, the shaming part of it is negative and i mean I, I know it's something that I've experienced myself when I when I take a flight, especially since coming into the climate world. And I think flight shaming shuts down discussion, right? Um, and it immediately puts the person who's taken the flight on the defensive, and you know they're more likely to ignore whatever the person is saying. So I think it's important to open up a discussion, which I don't think can happen with the shaming. I think, I'm, yeah, I mean, honestly, I don't think I've thought much about this aspect of climate communication. I think that's very important. And, and you know, we kind of, as researchers, we kind of say, oh, that's not part of my research. I'm not the one communicating. My job is to, to sit at a desk and do my job and, 
um, you know, I don't really think about the climate communication part of it, which is, I guess, is, is very vital because public perception matters. And if we want people to be part of the conversation, then we have to kind of change the way we talk uh, about these things. And people people go on the defensive. And I, I, I experienced this real time when um, we went to Blue Dot Festival and we had a stand there and people would come up to me and talk to me about my research. And when I said it was aviation, they would immediately be like, oh, my God, I have a flight next week. Um, you know, and they would immediately start feeling guilty. And I was like, oh, no, no, I'm not here to <laughs> shame you or anything like that. But the other thing is, you know, when we're talking about about choice, you know, flying, flying is a choice at the end of the day. There are some flights that people take uh, that cannot be helped. You have to do it. But like I said, there's sort of choices that we have within the place, the country that we live in. I think the other very important thing, and it and frustrates me a little bit as a consumer also, is that public transport is so expensive in the UK and Europe. Why? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we have to make, I mean, of course, aviation fuel is intact, taxed, and so they can be cost competitive. And it's really frustrating when you kind of look at options, even for, of course, your reason for flying is also different. If you're flying for business, that's a different, you know, there's a different solution to that. If you're flying for leisure, that's a different solution to that, you know. And so when, but you really, when you break it down at the end of the day and you have those like choices on a piece of paper, for me, it's very frustrating to see that you're going to be paying double the amount to go on a train. First of all, train journeys in Europe can be very fun. I've done them and they can be very fun. But they're so pricey. And so for me, I don't even in the UK, you know, I I've traveled up and down the UK and train prices are extortionate. And as a consumer and I earn pretty OK, <laughs> I'm, I'm fine. I'm doing fine for myself. But at the same time, I can imagine that somebody who has a family of four isn't looking at those prices and going, oh, that's a that's a choice that I'm going to make today, you know. Um, so for me, it's it's really, yeah, it's a moral question at the end of the day sometimes and a practical one, you know, people and people always tend to go for the more logical choice. So, yeah. Uh, just just to add to that, I agree that train journeys can be very fun. <laughs> the, uh, the one that I got from Paris to Milan uh, was amazing. So gorgeous, yeah. Um, it went straight through the Alps and it was absolutely oh, beautiful. Wow. So past places in the summertime where I'd only been skiing and seeing it in winter which was which was super cool and then also i i think i think if we do individual actions like that then i think it can be an inspiration for other people to take action as well um i know when i did that train journey i was talking to my to a lot of my friends about it and a few of them were like oh james you've sort of inspired me to do a train journey like this because it sounds super cool um which i think just shows how important some of our individual actions can be but then coming back to this because you know we've been talking about individual choices here and it's not always and sorry it's not about individual choices alone we need to talk about individual change but then alongside it we also need to talk about system change which is essentially what asha was mentioning with the price of public transport right um so for example uh, a, a system change one of the biggest uh, reductions of carbon that has come from the UK as a whole over the past 10 years has been to stop using coal. And, you know, that's not an individual choice. People can't choose that. It's the same with a lot of this, um, a lot about what we're talking about with aviation and travel. We can't control the price of public transport. The system needs to change as well 
to make public transport easier, which may then facilitate some sort of individual change. Um, so I think it's important to talk about the two alongside each other. I want now to maybe um, look more into these economic decisions that we are talking about, right? The logical economic decisions we make every day. You know, when we think about shipping, uh, we think about trade, and of course, most products come from overseas because they are cheaper to produce there and it's so much cheaper to, to just buy from there, right? So, and this is what the globalization of manufacturing has done. Um, and I know a lot of people who would, for example, uh, buy products from India or China or, you know, uh, other parts of Asia because it's just so cheap. And this is the reality. Do you think this can be changed? Um, I think it's going to be interesting to see how it changes in the future because I think it will change in some way. Um, I know at the minute where things are actually manufactured is starting to change um, purely from the fact of some of the fragile supply chains that we've been seeing. So, for example, the Suez Canal incident where the ship got stuck and it held up loads of cargo. Um, and unfortunately, the, 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 the current war as well. Um, this has shown how our supply chains can be quite fragile. And I know that some manufacturers have started to change where they are manufacturing to bring it closer in order to try and make their supply chains more resilient. Um, so I think that's interesting to see how that will change in the future. Also, not just about the, the stuff that we buy, but also some of the other cargo. So for example, um, coal and oil, I think that is going to change in the future anyway, because if we think about this low carbon transformation that we're heading towards, if we stop using fossil fuels and, and oil and coal, then um, the, the demand for them to be transported around the world is going to stop as well, right? So what is going to happen to the thousands of oil carriers that uh, are, are currently sailing around the world? Um, how is that going to change? Are they going to start transporting uh, other low carbon fuels, for example, biofuels or ammonia, and where's that going to come from? So that will alter where the demand for certain um, goods and cargo comes from anyway. And particularly around around coal, if we're in, in 2050, if we've transformed to a zero carbon society and we're no longer using coal, then I know we, we currently transport, we currently ship around 1 billion tonnes of coal per year. So, you know, what's what's going to happen to that cargo? What's it going to be replaced with and where is that going to come from and how will that affect the system? Um, so, yeah, I think the, the the pattern of global trade trade is going to change and it'll be interesting to see how, how that happens. Yeah, I think COVID, COVID kind of did a number on that as well, you know, and we started kind of assessing uh, the fragility of supply chains, as James put it. Um, and it's very interesting to to hear that, um, you know, a lot of my research, some of my research is on shipping and the other kind of side to that, the more technological side to that is that shipping actually has a lot of immediate solutions. People like James and other manufacturers and academics and researchers have done a lot of work on shipping decarbonization. And compared to aviation, what I've seen when I do a side-to-side -side comparison is that 
there is slightly more optimism within the shipping sector and there are solutions that can be implemented readily, um, right? And so on the more sort of technological side, there are solutions out there unlike, you know, the struggles that aviation sector sees uh, for many, many reasons. And so, um, yeah, I think it's very interesting to sort of know that, you know, in the future of trade changes, what, where are we going to start demanding our products come from? I think demand management is not often spoken about within the shipping sector. It is in the aviation sector. But I recently spoke to another uh, stakeholder that I've been in contact with, and she was the first person to actually mention demand management and said that we have to she spoke about, you know, us sort of being victims of capitalism and, and having or buying these unnecessary things. The other very interesting thing that I've heard when it comes to demand and shipping is we had listened to a podcast a while ago and uh, I can't remember the name of the, the person who was being interviewed, but he said, if you look around your room right now, everything has spent some time on a ship at one point or the other during his lifetime. And that was a stark reminder that we are so dependent on shipping as a mode of transport that we kind of take it for granted at this stage, you know. And so when he said that, we kind of did an immediate, you know, look around and we were like, yeah, that's right. And um, yeah, it's 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 much more difficult to kind of uh, to talk about demand side of things when it comes to shipping because of that very reason. So, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Super, super important as well. I mean, over the past 10 years, we've seen a lot of efficiency gains in shipping. Ships have slowed down and they've had other technologies that have helped to improve their efficiency. But demand has increased and it has essentially offset all the gains that we've seen. So it is a huge part. You both mentioned COVID earlier, right? And I think, you know, we all kind of have an idea that it, it had an impact on aviation and shipping emissions. Um, what? Can you tell us more about, you know, what kind of impact it has had? Um, did it reduce? Is it go? Do we expect this to uh, to be the trend or, you know, because I, I personally think, I mean, I don't have the data. Maybe you can tell me that it, it's going up again because, you know, when I traveled recently, the amount of people in the airport was just <laughs> wow, as if the pandemic never happened. So, yeah. What, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it impacted aviation. It's probably one of the first sectors to that it impacted and in a very big way. You know, the first thing that everybody did was close its borders, and that meant that people had to stop flying and traveling. Um, and so aviation emissions reduced by 50% year on year, um, you know, from 2019, I think, compared to 2021, it was, there was a 50% reduction. Um, but yeah, it was immediate, you know, the effect on aviation. And we kind of saw that aviation sector has been crippled economically by this. And that's the narrative that they kind of want to put out there. There have been financial hits, obviously, but um, I think while it has affected global emissions, we kind of see this uptick that's happening right now because restrictions are loosened and people can travel, no COVID tests are required. So those things kind of encourage and incentivize people to, to fly more. And, you know, people haven't experienced a proper summer break in two years. What do you expect? There is going to be a consumer demand for flying uh, again. Has it, has it done uh, a lot of job to kind of meet its 
pre-pandemic numbers? Probably not. I think it's still in recovery. I don't think we can say that we're in a post-COVID world yet. I think COVID is still out there. We just don't really acknowledge it anymore. Um, but yeah, aviation, it's very difficult to say when it really will come back. I think I remember doing this analysis back in 2020 when the pandemic first happened and we were like, yep, by end of 2021, everything is going to be back to normal. But that just wasn't the case, you know. And so we've seen so many iterations of this uh, this pandemic and how it's affected. But I think, yeah, it's very difficult to say whether flying will be back to normal. I think it probably will, uh, seeing how people are kind of clamoring to to fly um but yeah it's very it's very difficult i think shipping has seen a bit maybe different patterns over covid because we obviously still didn't stop demanding things you know so uh emissions for shipping were probably less so than than aviation but maybe james can speak more to that uh, yeah i think it went down i think it was about between one to two percent for shipping and then it has subsequently bounced back um yeah but I'd, yeah, I you have not looked into the specific data on that, but yeah, in, in terms of aviation, fifty percent is huge, right? Absolutely huge. It's yeah, it's staggering. I mean, we just there was just no planes, you know, yeah, there was yeah. no flying at all, yeah. um, and freight and uh, air freight makes up a very very small percent percentage of that. So, yeah, it was very insignificant. But yeah, it was a it was a huge it was a huge difference. I also heard that some uh, some. Uh, planes carried on flying because the companies needed to keep their slots or something like that yeah in their yeah in the airports when they get like the prime gates the gates that are not too far yeah yep yep that's true (laughs) (laughs) they get flying empty planes that's right (laughs) um yeah yeah it's a it's interesting and i think the aviation sector is riding on the coattails of the the financial hit from COVID-19 still. Uh, but the aviation sector generally is very privileged when it comes to the way that it's taxed and the tax structure, you know, that don't get taxed for aviation fuel, which is very unique for a transport sector. Um, and that's why the, when, we talk, when we spoke about them being cost competitive, that's a very big reason as to why they can be. Um, and yeah, it's it's very difficult to again determine what it will look like in the future. I think any analysis that I did before has been kind of debunked because the pandemic has taken a very different shape to what we initially pictured. Um, but I think sort of talking about decarbonizing aviation, I think this is really the right time because like I said, consumer patterns have changed. I think businesses now realizing that they can do a lot of business without actually having to fly there. Um, and that's cost effective for them. So um, I remember we did this project with Nintendo last year uh, about the Heathrow expansion. And one of their main sort of reasons for expanding the airport was business travel. And the question at the time wasn't asked, you know, what if business travel stops or we find other more creative ways to do business without people having to fly somewhere? Um, and I think that was a big question mark and it still remains. Yeah. Yeah, really interesting. Actually, I remember I remember reading, I don't know which country, but the news article saying, you know, um, to simulate to simulate um, flights, um, airplanes have actually been charging 
um, to just sit and eat inside their planes, <laughs> even without flying, um, just to recuperate some of their losses from COVID. So that's that's quite interesting. Maybe that's another way to experience an airplane without actually, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> without actually flying. Um, and so we talked about solutions already quite a lot, right? So let's just zone in on this. Um, let's first talk about industry solutions. So what industry solutions are there to curb aviation and shipping emissions? Um, I think on the aviation side, actually, the airplane is actually a very efficient mode of transportation for what it does. It's already very fuel efficient, which is why fuel efficiency gains cannot actually make much of a dent is because they're already quite efficient machines. So on the technological side, when we talk about fuel efficiency, those are very marginal gains that are not really going to make a dent. I think there's a lot of talk about uh, net emission, uh, negative emission technologies, NETs, um, like carbon capture and storage. Um, but again, the scale in which CCS is required to come online and do what aviation sector is expecting it to do is a huge unknown. Um, where those CCS plants are going to be based, that's also a huge unknown. Um, we have other, um, we have solutions like SAF, sustainable aviation uh, fuels, which are drop-in fuels. So no, none of the infrastructure needs to be changed in order uh, for drop-in fuels to be uh, used within an airplane. But again, the drop-in fuels don't actually curb a lot of they're not a long-term solution by any means um aviation sector is it's incredibly difficult for technological solutions to come online and a huge aspect of that is safety um you know there's for a lot of the new technologies that can be used inside planes there's a big question mark on whether it's safe or not um and you know one accident on a hydrogen powered plane hydrogen will never see the light of day in, in a plane anymore. So a lot of these will take a very, very long time. So they're very much silver bullet options. It's not like there isn't any. And there are researchers hard at work to try to figure out what the appropriate solution will be. That's one aspect of the question that we're asking. The other part of that is whether that's possible within Paris Climate Agreement timelines, um, you know, and so those are two very big question marks, and that's part of my research as well, you know, answering those two questions. Yeah, and I would say shipping is pretty different to aviation. Uh, as Asha mentioned, a lot of the fuel efficiency gains for, for planes are already already done, but for ships, we've got loads of loads of solutions to, uh, technologically that we can that we can do to to reduce the emissions uh, on ships. I think the, the the first thing I would say is ships burn fossil fuels currently, so the primary way of reducing those emissions is by changing the fuel. Right, if the ship no longer burns fossil fuels, then it won't produce carbon dioxide. So in the long term, the solution is to swap out these fossil fuels for low carbon fuel sources, whether that be ammonia or, or biofuels or hydrogen or electricity and um, something that is not a fossil fuel. The unfortunate thing for shipping is that that those alternative fuels, those low carbon fuels aren't available yet and they won't be available at scale until after 2030. And what we know about climate change is that we need immediate action, right? It's a climate emergency. We need to do things now. Um, and that's 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 a big part of the solution that we see in Tyndall 
for shipping. So we need to look at what ships can do now. What can they retrofit onto some of these existing ships to, to reduce in the, in the short term to really bring down the emissions of, of the sector? And like I said, there are there are loads of options. I mean, the work that I look at is, is wind propulsion. So that's installing, you know, modern sails back on ships to, to not produce all the power of the ship, but to provide an, an assist power. So they save around maybe 10% of the fuel. Um, I look at that with something called weather routing, which is like a, a satellite navigation system, which eff uh, effectively guides the ship to, to areas of ocean with better wind to increase the efficiency of the sails. But then you also have speed reduction. That's a big part of it. Um, reducing, we, we just finished a, an analysis with with, a, with an intern here at, here at Tyndall, um, and he showed that by just slowing down 10, 10%, a ship can save 17% of its fuel. Um, so some quite serious, serious gains there. Um, and we've got, you know, we're also working on other things at Tyndall, for example, shore power. That's where ships essentially use electricity when they're in port to, to, save, to save emissions. And then I was also at a conference, like I said, in Italy the other week, and there's some really cool technologies out there. So there's one called uh, air lubrication, which is essentially a, a system which pumps bubbles underneath the ship to reduce its resistance. So essentially, float, well, floats more, more, more of a smoother sail. Oh, exactly. Yeah, nice. so it reduces the resistance. Yeah, it's amazing. There's another one that I uh, that someone gave a presentation on as well, where um, essentially the the ship's hold, so the part of the ship that's in the water. Because it spends so much time in the water, it can have a lot of organisms that attach itself to to the bottom of the ship, and that can reduce its efficiency by increasing the resistance. And to stop that from happening, um, this company has developed a sonar system where you essentially stick uh, this metal thing on the outside of the ship. It um, pumps sonar through the ship's hull, which stops these organisms from from attaching. Wow. Um, which can save up to five percent of the of the ship's efficiency and five percent of the ship's fuel. Um, so yeah, there are a lot of options. In the short term, there's not one golden bullet. So it's going to be a case of I've I've heard it described as as a toolbox of solutions. We need to pick from our toolbox of solutions. Some might be more applicable in some areas, some ship types, some routes than others. So we might have to select. Uh, specifically depending on the individual ship that we're that we're talking about um but yeah there are a lot of solutions that we could do in the short term and then in the long term combining that with changing the changing the fuel system that the, that the ship uses to produce this low carbon shipping system Wow, thanks for sharing. Um, I think based on both of your answers and especially shipping, I think we have quite a bright future <laughs> ahead of us um, if we actually pursue this properly and, you know, um, and the industry actually listens to climate researchers like the both of you. Um, but, you know, I also like to end my episodes with empowering our audience and trying to empower individuals who want to do more for climate change right because sometimes it can feel so overwhelming you know all of these problems how what can we actually do and i guess you also mentioned you know some individual actions earlier in our discussions and of course james said you know we all need to play our part so just a rundown how can we help curb aviation and shipping emissions as individuals 
I mean, for me, this question is is a hard one, actually. You know, it doesn't. It's not as easy to answer, especially for the aviation sector. You know, un- unless I tell people to fly less or fish out more money to go on a train. Um, you know, there isn't any. And I think when it comes to business travel. Um, I think businesses have this onus now of making sure that um, their employees are not necessarily flying in for conferences all the time when it's not needed. I was speaking to somebody recently and they said that, you know, when I'm part of a company and when they kind of tell me that I have to go there, it's actually my responsibility to just kind of listen to what they say. And I don't get a choice in, in that. And so in that instance, individuals can't really sort of say anything, you know, it's not really up to them. So with aviation, the individual action really is if you don't have to fly, don't fly, Um, you know, so it's very difficult to kind of, there's no sort of prescription for them. Top-down policy is extremely important. I think not just not just for aviation, but also making other modes of transport more economical for the average person so that they at the end of the day have a choice you know because flying is a luxury and when people do it they want to do it because like you said renee they saved up for something or they were going to go see their family um you know so i can't present a viable option for for that an alternative for that because i think that's a moral question but at the same time when we are we are in a very privileged country in a very privileged region where we have those choices and we can make those choices um if it's conducive to us and if if the government looks at us and sees, hey, you know, we have to make those choices more economical for the common man. Um, so, yeah, I think on the aviation side, it's, it's a very difficult question to answer in terms of individual actions. Maybe maybe James will give us more of a good news <laughs> on the <Yeah>. shipping side. <laughs> I've been very negative this entire meeting, so... <laughs> <laughs> I'm unfortunately going to say that it's a difficult question for me as well, I think. Um, no. A difficult question, but an interesting one, I think. So, yeah. so as as we've alluded to in the earlier in the podcast, the IMO and some of the targets that are coming from the sector um, aren't great and they're not aligned with the sort of action that we need to see. But then, I mean, this question is about individual change, right? And if you, as an indiv- individual, think how how can I affect this shipping system, right? A lot of the times in the past, we've not even thought about it, let alone thought about how we can influence the change there. But I think one of the positive things that is happening in the sector at the minute is that private ambition of these climate change targets, the private ambition is actually overtaking the regulatory ambition. So, for example, a lot of stakeholders, specifically cargo owners, are pushing for zero carbon ships a lot earlier than what the IMO are talking about. So there's a particular um, a particular group um, of cargo owners that are pushing to use zero carbon ships by 2040. Nice. And the reason that they're pushing for that is because they know that if they transport their goods on a lower carbon ship, people are going to be more likely or, or more inclined to buy from them, right? So we as individuals, I think one of the most important things we can do to affect the shipping system is really to, sh- to build awareness of how much we want it to change and how much we care about it changing. Um, and if we get enough people talking about it, so 
you know, I mean, so these cargo owners are, uh, to name a few, Amazon, Ikea, Patagonia, all the things that I myself might buy things from. And if we as individuals can raise awareness about the, the concern that we have and how much we um, want the shipping system to become low carbon because um, we can then, you know, purchase things with having a, a lower climate impact, then I think that could have an influence on other cargo owners to to really push towards stronger targets as well, um, which could have an effect um, to speed up the 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 the, um, the changes that we see. Uh, yeah, so that's thing raising awareness, things like posting on social media, joining campaigns, going to rallies, yeah. things like that. I think bottom up, bottom up, uh, you know policy works uh, you know in a lot of instances it has historically when we you know look at different things and um like james spoke about vegetarianism and other policy changes landmark changes that have we've seen it's a lot through people's interest in in it and um we haven't really spoken a lot about shipping and aviation emissions in the forefront you know and transport emissions generally kind of tend to uh to take a back seat in conversations and a lot of that is because of uh lobbying from private corporations about you know you need to fly because why not um you know and so all of this kind of marketing that we consume affects the way that we think about these things and so i think it's very important for us to kind of differentiate what is happening versus what needs to happen well thank you for joining us today james and nasha um, we had a very interesting discussion, um, and I hope our listeners have gained a better understanding of the aviation and shipping sectors and why they continue to be a problem. And we also hope that even if, you know, Asha mentioned, it's really difficult to find individual solutions, um, we, we, we hope that our listeners have gained insights on some solutions that we can do as individuals. Um, and as James also said earlier, you know, when we start maybe changing a little bit here and there, our behaviors um, in our everyday life, we can even inspire other people to do the same. And maybe it's not as easy to change our behaviors when it comes to shipping and aviation but you know little steps at a time still make a difference so thank you for listening to us today and see you in the next episode of the tindle talk